Good morning. Uh, my name is Phil Pearson, and I'm the ministry director here, and it's so good to be with you. I want to start off uh, grades five and sixes, or four through sixes, if you're still with us. Um, head out with St. Keith's kids. I think Chandler just headed out the back, um, but if you're still in, join her. I want to start with a story. It is the first time I ever preached. I was 18 years old, and I was interning at a campus church back in Ontario, and the pastor at the time invited me to preach the Christmas sermon, because apparently pastors don't like preaching Christmas. So I was interning, and I was so excited about this opportunity to preach. Everything that I had been learning in school, I was going to pour into this one single sermon. I was a ball of energy ready to explode with theology, so I started researching and reading and writing, and I was going to present a defense of the Christian faith, and it was going to be filled with stories and quotes and anecdotes, and it was going to be witty and clever and funny and thought-provoking. It was going to bring a tear to your eye, and I got on stage ready to preach this 20-page sermon, and I suddenly got there, and I started feeling nervous. My palms were sweaty. My knees were weak. My arms were heavy. Suddenly, I felt like I was about to get vomit on my sweater already. <laughs> I wasn't as eloquent as I was now. And I was filled with ums and ahs. I kept losing track on my page where I was. I could feel the congregation pitying me, just wanting this to be over, but I had to keep on going. And the whole time I was trying to build up to this quote by Larry King, and the quote from Larry King is that he thinks that the most important question in the world is whether or not Jesus believed he truly was virgin born. Looking back, that is a terrible quote. And it should be asked of Mary, but no, he asks a man instead, and the one who wasn't really there. But I get to this quote with fits and starts, and I'm getting to it, and I say, the most important question to Larry King is whether or not Jesus was a virgin. <laughs> yeah. And I kept going because I didn't know I said it, but suddenly I, like now, began to hear some snickers and laughters in the crowd, and I thought to myself, I didn't say anything funny. That means I did something funny. They're not laughing with me. They're definitely laughing at me. And that's when horror set in. I just questioned Jesus' virginity. So I asked the question, did I just question Jesus' virginity? And someone kindly in the crowd shouted, yes. And I, oh my goodness, I couldn't believe it. My very first time preaching, and I went full heretic, full Da Vinci Code. And I, oh my goodness, let me, let me try that again. I, that's not what he said. Let me read it again. So I went back to the quote, and I said, the most important question to Larry King is whether or not Jesus was a virgin. And I knew I got it wrong again. And I just kept on going because I wanted it to be over. I could not stand being on that stage any further. And, and after I, I got off and the pastor said, you know, after you committed heresy, you preached a lot better. And I don't know what that says about you. And I sat with that horror for a long time. But I tell this story because every single time I get up to preach, people often ask, like, oh, do you get nervous before you preach? And I say, for about a minute. And then I remember that I can never be worse than that first moment. And I will say, I don't believe that heresy, that it is heretical. That is not what I was trying to purport in that moment. But I bring this up because today I want to do something a little strange. I want to preach about preaching. And so I thought I would share with you my worst time ever preaching. As a community, we've been exploring a series called Encounters of Goodness. And every week we, at the beginning, looked at different moments when people encountered God's goodness, his grace and love in surprising ways. And then in the second half of the series, we looked at how we could be formed to be people of goodness. 
to be conduits of God's goodness and how we can encounter it ourselves, be shaped by it, and then send that to the people around us. But without realizing it, I started preaching a series within a series because my past three sermons have been about Sabbath, communion, and baptism. Things we do here at church, you could say. And I thought, well, why not close the whole mini-series on what we, the practices we do at church by preaching about preaching? I'm going full meta today. I am preaching about the practice of preaching. And really, my thesis is this. I want to preach about why we preach, what we preach, and how preaching shapes us to be the kind of people who preach. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I want to wrestle with this question. Why do we come to church every single week and listen to a person get up on stage to talk for 25 to 30 minutes? What's the goal? What are we trying to achieve? And why and how should we listen? And what is the result we're hoping for? And in order to do this, I want to walk the road to Emmaus with Jesus. Because I want to posit a claim here, and it's something that I came to as I was researching for this. I think the road to Emmaus is truly the first ever real Christian sermon. It's the first truly post-resurrection sermon, and it's preached by Jesus. And Jesus is doing a lot on this road as he preaches to these two followers. So I'm going to read it one more time. If you grabbed a gray Bible from the back, um, it's page 756. Um, the translation will be slightly different because we've moved to NIV. Um, but if, please follow along with me, Luke 24, 13. I'm going to read halfway and then pick up the second half. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, or do you not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all his people. The chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman said, but they did not see him. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow your hearts are to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all scriptures concerning himself. So, two followers of Jesus are leaving Jerusalem in defeat. They thought he was going to do something great. They thought he was bringing about a new kingdom. They thought he was going to overtake the Roman Empire. But they were wrong. And instead, their Messiah hung on a cross. And then some women come to them and say, he's alive, and they go and check for themselves, and they don't see anything. And so they're walking away from Jerusalem, tails between their legs, in defeat towards Emmaus, walking from their home. And the commentaries that I read, they spoke of Emmaus as basically a town of no particular significance, 
The only thing that seemed very interesting about it is the translation of Emmaus translates to hot springs. So essentially, we could put it this way. Two people, Cleopas and this unnamed follower, are essentially going to the Scandinav to grieve <laughs> and seek comfort for the loss they experienced. And along, this, along the way, a stranger shows up and begins walking with them. We know it to be Jesus, but their eyes are kept from seeing him. And this is a, a repeated moment in post-resurrection Jesus. People can't see who he is yet, and it will lead to this beautiful turn. And as Jesus comes along and begins asking them, he's going to preach them a sermon. So he does a couple things. I want to focus on these things he does. First, he comes up and he says, what are you talking about? And I like what Luke says. He goes, their faces were downcast. They're saddened. They're having to give the hard news all over again. And they say this beautiful line, we hoped he was going to redeem Israel. Because here's the reminder that to them, Jesus' death was a failure. It showcases how the Roman Empire defeated them, how they followed yet another lying messianic figure. And this line, we hope he was going to redeem Israel, it also shows that they don't get what Jesus was fully going to do. They saw him as a political liberator, as someone who would overtake the empire. Jesus' death is the death of dreams and hopes for them. And then they even say, they saw, or these women said that they encountered him at the tomb, but the fact that they're walking away says, we don't believe it. We didn't see it for ourselves, and everything's done. So we're leaving. And I think this is actually part of the reason that doesn't, Jesus doesn't just pop up and say, hey, it's me, I'm back. No, he gets to know them. He's being a smart preacher, you could say. He's learning his audience, his context, how they think, and getting to the true heart of what they need. The Irish uh, pastor and scholar Alec Matoyer, he writes this, the preacher has two responsibilities when they preach. First, to the truth, and second, to this particular group of people. How will they best hear the truth? How are they to shape and phrase it so that it comes to them in a way that is palatable, that gains the most receptive hearing and avoids needless hurt? This is what we see Jesus doing, probing, asking questions, getting to know them along the way. And then Jesus' response is wonderful. It's classic Jesus. He goes, how foolish are you? How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. I'm never bold enough to do that, and I probably would never will. But did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And Jesus just says this so matter-of-factly. And the disciples clearly don't notice that this is the case. This is why they're leaving. Clearly, this wasn't the plan. They don't get what Jesus was trying to do. But so Jesus says, let me walk you through it. Let me show you what I'm talking about. And so Luke writes, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained what was said in all scriptures concerning himself. And Moses is not just the story of Moses. Moses is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's a shorthand for the Torah. And then the prophets is all the rest, everything else in the Old Testament, maybe excluding Song of Solomon. I don't need Jesus there. And Jesus is saying something truly radical. He's saying that the whole Old Testament points to him. He is the fulfillment of all stories and all prophecies and all the hopes of the people in it. Maybe he started with a passage like Genesis 3 when God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman 
between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And maybe Jesus said, I am that offspring that crushed death and was killed in the process. And then maybe he went from there. Maybe he went to the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when God said, I will through your seed bless all nations. Or maybe about Moses and the need for a true deliverer, a true redeemer. Maybe he pointed to the Psalms of David where he said, the Lord said to my Lord. Or maybe that David pointed to the need for an eternal king. In the prophets, maybe he retold the stories of Isaac um, or of Isaiah, the prophecies of the suffering servant and the virgin born. More than likely, as you read through the Old or through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, any time you see an Old Testament reference, well, it might have started right here on the road to Emmaus with Jesus opening their eyes. If you want to know what happened, just take a highlighter and highlight every Old Testament reference in those Gospels, and you'll see what Jesus might have been pointing to. And this is what we try to do in preaching. Because every week, we gather together and we go through different parts of the Bible, but somehow we always end up back at Jesus. Old Testament, new. Stories, wisdom. Songs, law. It doesn't matter. We always get back to Jesus. Because we believe that Jesus is the spine, the whole, the glue that holds the book together. And we learn this from Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project puts it this way. He says, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And we believe this and it's because it what, it's what Jesus shows on the road. So I want to stop. A quick midpoint recap, just so our brains are fully primed to what's going on. Because Jesus is preaching to us, and he's showing what it means to be a good preacher. Well, first, he meets his audience where they're at. He meets them on the road. He doesn't say, turn around and start listening to me. He just walks with them right where they are. He gets to know them. And then he, the second part, right? He gets to know them, asks them questions, learns their worldview. He feels and shares their pain. And then what he's really doing is he's priming to preach the gospel, to show how the gospel speaks right to their current moment. And he does it by saying, I am the one to fulfill all scripture. Jesus preaches to them. He proclaims the good news of the gospel. And he isn't just teaching because teaching is presenting information. It's trying to get something into your head. It's telling you that 2 plus 2 equals 4 or maybe the political implications of To Kill a Mockingbird or the correct way to deadlift. But preaching is proclaiming. It's showcasing. It's highlighting. And it's speaking to the heart. I love the way N.T. Wright puts it. He says, preaching is meant to be an occasion when, so to speak, God happens. When that strange and yet familiar moment comes upon us and we know that we have been addressed, healed, confronted, kindled by the one who made us and loved us. The goal of the preacher is to proclaim the gospel in such a way that God speaks, to reveal the good news, the good news in such a way that God reveals the good news to our hearts all over again. And he does this to to these two disciples on the road, he's saying the good news is this is all according to plan. God is still in control. The world is not ending. Jesus is the fulfillment. The gospel to them in that moment was so important and he reveals it in such a beautiful way. But this is actually one of the central aspects of the gospel is it is not quite singular. Though the gospel event is about death and resurrection, it's about more than that. 
and it speaks again and again to all of our moments. When I first applied to St. Pete's, one of the application questions was, what is the gospel? 300 words. And there was like 20 questions on the application, and I wrestled with that one the longest. And it should have been easy, because I went to school for theology, I've been studying, I learned the gospel again and again, but what I struggled with is that I think in the mind of a preacher, and that I was trying to preach it to a single person, and I kept stumbling over my answer, so instead I, I went full preacher, I just decided to proclaim, to proclaim the good news, because that's what the gospel is, and I wrote this, the gospel, clear and simple, is good news. It is the proclamation of what God has done through Jesus. But what we see in Scripture is this one thing is not simply one simple thing. The gospel affects all things. The death and resurrection are too vast, too deep, and will take more than a lifetime to understand. At its core, the gospel is good news, but what excites me even more is about what it is good news about. It is the good news that the kingdom of heaven is near. It is the good news that the kingdom of heaven is breaking forth into the here and now. It is the good news that death has been defeated, that Jesus saves, that death is not the end of the story, that the grave is empty, that Christ has risen, that God does not hate us but loves us, that God took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, that we are part of the body and Christ is the head, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken. It is the good news that the blind have been given sight, the hungry are fed, the lame walk, that we have been reconciled with God, that God pours out himself for us, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, that Jesus is our great high priest, that through him the veil has been torn, that God is redeeming all things, that God weeps with us, that though we are more sinful than we imagined, we are more loved than we hoped. It is the good news that Jesus is king, not Caesar. It is the good news that God is love. And to me, those are just parts of what the gospel is. The list just becomes longer the more and more you look at it. And the goal of the preacher is to ask this, what part of the gospel does my audience need to hear? If you're trapped in a cycle of habitual sin, maybe you need to hear that the gospel is about liberation and forgiveness. If you're poor, maybe you need to hear that the gospel is, about, is good news for the poor because they will be made rich. If you're rich, maybe you need to hear that through the gospel, you will bless all those around you. If your political party lost, maybe you need to hear that God is king. If you're lonely and you feel isolated, maybe the part of the gospel you need to hear is God is with you. He will not abandon you. This one's for me. If the future seems bleak, if global warming seems like it's dooming us all, if the markets are collapsing and the world seems to be falling apart, well, maybe you need to remember that God loves and is redeeming this world and is not leaving, especially in ways we can't see. See, the gospel, all of this is to say that, of course, it's about Jesus dying and rising again, but we believe, we're convinced that that has implications for everything. And this is why we can't just preach one sermon or listen to one single sermon and be done. Do you imagine that? You just listen to one sermon and that's all. You don't have to go to church ever again. You learn the gospel. And then you can just live and be great from there. But no, we come back week after week after week and we keep on finding something new or maybe just rehearing what we needed to hear. The majority of the New Testament, all of Paul and John, of John and Peter's letters, are essentially sermons to local audiences showcasing the gospel again and again in different ways. 
how it meets them, how it speaks to them with different language and imagery. And they learned it here on the road to Emmaus from Jesus, opening the scripture and pointing to himself. Every week, someone gets up and preaches. And it might not always be good. It might not be clever. The preacher, very, very well, might not communicate in the style you like. They might trip over themselves with ums or ahs. They might not know what to do with their hands. They might have misquoted something or done something that was frustrating. And we should listen with questioning ears, ready to defend and challenge when needed. But we should also ask, how is God trying to speak to me? What is God trying to reveal to me? What is the good news that I need to hear? Or what have I heard and forgotten? When we listen to a person preaching, we should always be asking the question, what is the good news for me? Let's jump back into the text really quick, verses 28 to 33. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going to go further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So, even, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them, saying, um, gave it, broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while we talked on the road and opened scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. But they found, then they found the eleven with them and assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized when they broke the bread. Jesus preaches a sermon to these two disciples. And then he's about to leave and they invite him. No, 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 don't leave. Come and dine with us. And this is the moment of true revelation, this beautiful picture. Jesus eats a meal with them, and he takes, breaks, blesses, and gives. And if you've been reading the book of Luke, you'll have seen those four words, take, break, bless, and give, over and over again. They're there at the Last Supper. They're there at the feeding of the 5,000. They're there all through tables and dining rooms of the Gospels. And Luke is doing something beautiful because he says, then their eyes were opened. And that line, their eyes were opened, is calling all the way back to Genesis, to Adam and Eve when they took from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and they took it for themselves and they ate it. And then it says, their eyes were opened. But Luke is rewriting the story. He's saying, no longer are these, take, these people taking what they shouldn't they're being given and receiving, and through that, their eyes are open to see who Jesus truly is, through who God truly is. Preaching and communion open their eyes so they can encounter God for themselves. One writer had said, when we listen to a sermon, we are to put our eyes in our ears, because through hearing, we will be given new sight. And what's the response? The response is beautiful. Were our hearts not burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Their hearts are caught aflame by the gospel. Their hearts burn with passion and joy, excitement. They have seen and encountered God. They've seen the good news for themselves. And what does it lead them to do? They turn around back down the seven-mile road, back to Jerusalem to proclaim, to preach themselves, 
Jesus, the preacher, comes and preaches them a sermon, and they become preachers themselves. This whole time I've been preaching about how we preach, and the reason is this. The goal of preaching is to reveal the gospel in such a way that it sparks joy and passion and excitement, and it creates a desire that eyes would open, that our hearts would be a little flame, all so that we can go and preach ourselves. If you've been following the Christian path long enough, soon enough you'll be called to preach. And I don't mean you have to get up on stage and preach to a group of people. It's horrifying, trust me. But remember, this first post-resurrection sermon happens walking on a road to a spa with an audience of two. But if you're a follower of Christ, you're ultimately called to do the same. And if you're not, that's okay. But I'm inviting you, hear the good news, and maybe your hearts will be a little flame. We follow Jesus' leadings. We learn our context, the places we're in, the people we're, how the people around us think, how they feel. We feel the emotions and pain. And we pray, what does the gospel mean to this place that I'm in right now? What part of the gospel do the people around me need to hear, and how can I show that with love and grace and humility? I've internalized it myself, or at least part of it, and how do I share that? And it won't always be good. You hear me stutter and ums and ahs. There are stories of preachers bombing left and right. It won't be eloquent, eloquent or clever or funny, but it's still called to go and preach. And when we come and listen to a sermon, we are to ask ourselves, what is the good news? How can it shape me? And how can I share it? I was talking with Caleb Spikesma a few weeks ago. Spikesma, sorry. And... I had asked him a question because Caleb is a horticulturalist, or at least in my opinion is. <laughs> he knows a lot about trees, and I asked him, Caleb, what is the best type of tree? And his response was thoughtful and beautiful. <laughs> he said, the best type of tree is the tree that grows exactly where it is supposed to be. The best type of tree is the tree that grows exactly where it is supposed to be. I love that. And so it is with sermons. Like a, good, like a good tree, a good sermon is spoken right where it needs to be, right to the people and places where, that need to hear it. But for that to happen, it takes you and me and everyone else that's following Jesus to go and plant seeds of sermons ourselves. And sooner or later, if that's the case, we may find ourselves in a forest of trees called the gospel. We may find ourselves in a forest called the kingdom of heaven but it takes planting seeds. Every Sunday, an invitation hangs out for us. Will you encounter the good news through hearing? And second, will you let your heart be caught aflame? Will you let your heart burn? And if you do, will you go and preach? The Lord has risen. Death has been defeated. God is with you and loves you. We have a source of hope in a world of darkness. And to me, that sounds like good news that I want to preach. Let me pray.